social norms should be would call Salem Elohim. So Tikkun Olam, creating this kind of society where Salem Elohim is emphasized would be the goal of Judaism. And of course it's expressed differently when they use the term Mashiach or Yemotah Mashiach, Messianic Era, wherein that will be the core critical value. The Rambam, of course, ends Mishneh Torah, which is an attempt at the reconstruction of society based on halakhic values, which therefore has to incorporate all of halakha, not simply that which is practical at that point of view, but messianically, all halakha is going to be relevant. Therefore, Mishneh Torah is the only code of Jewish law, second to the Mishnah, of course, which incorporates all of halakha. And what is the one pasuk, the one line that he ends Mishneh Torah with? When all people understand and know God, they will therefore then treat all people creating the image of God with infinite potential. Which means, not embarrassing, not desecrating that divine image, which means seeing each person as a manifestation of God's creation. So one would want to create that society. Furthermore, one might say the third principle that is an undercurrent throughout the entire Tanakh would be a sechar mitzvah, you're rewarded for what you do, and you're punished for what you don't do. Het ve'onsho sechar mitzvah, one might put place it. Much of the Nevi'im, of course, relates to that. You see an ongoing cyclical situation in the book of Judges, where the Jewish people sin, sold into slavery, do Teshuvah, ongoingly, and then what happens? They are provided with a savior, salvation. Then what happens? Complacency, falling into paganism. And then what happens? Then again, they are sold into slavery. Then what happens? They do Teshuvah, they cry to God. Then what happens? There's a savior provided. That cyclical situation in Shofetim teaches us about this notion of collectively, Sechar Mitzvah and Chet Me'on Shor. Sin and its consequences, punishment, and the reward for the proper doing of mitzvot. True collectively, true individually. A more subtle nuance. True individually? We're going to talk about that later. We'll talk about that as we go along. You'll see. I will absolutely come back to your point as an essential point of this class. Give me a minute. Collectively, certainly true. The Shema, of course, that we say every single day is reflective of that notion. Collective punishment. Collective punishment. A subtle nuance of that notion. Welcome, I'm so happy to see you. Made my day. Yes, you did. Not perfectly so, but certainly better. We're on the right track. A subtle nuance of that notion would be the, in, the biblical notion of the interactivity between morality and natural law. In that, we all, of course, respect and know of something called natural law. What does natural law mean? The inevitability of certain scientific principles, such as gravity, electromagnetism, the weak and strong forces of the nuclear atom, right? So that's all inevitable. Gravity means if I jump off a roof, I'm going to inevitably go down. An ineluctable, unyielding force of nature begins to operate. How about the immutability? How about the immutability of laws of nature? Yeah, this would be immutable as well. Absolutely correct. Now, next question. Torah would seem to teach that there is an immutability and ineluctability as well of the moral law. 
In other words, if you sin, you're going to be punished. We have that throughout the Torah. Everybody knows that. Throughout the Nevi'im, everybody knows that. Clear. A further point over here would be, is that the natural law will in fact bring about that punishment. What does that mean? If I transgress, the rain will not fall down upon my crops and I will starve. If I transgress, there may be an earthquake and swallow me. Korah. In other words, or in Baitayu which we had seen, Baitayu which said the same thing. If you are in God's domain, the area of God's intrinsic direct activity, namely Eretz Israel, and you engage in those to'avot, abominations, Torah is very clear about this, what's going to happen? The land shall spew you out. The land shall spew you out if you violate the sanctity of God's land. So there you see an interactivity between natural law, rain or the earth, and the moral law. You transgress, you're going to pay a price via the natural law. Welcome, good to see you. So that idea as well is throughout all of Tanakh. Fourth, one might say that Am Nifhad, the chosen nation concept, is as well a notion that runs throughout Tanakh. A nation is chosen. I often say, and I said it three or four months ago when we began, how odd of God to choose the Jews. It's not so odd, the Jews chose God. Maurice Samuels, 1921-22, when this concept of chosen nation was used as an anti-Semitic statement. Jews think they're so much better, and therefore we hate the Jews. The response was that Maurice Samuels, one of the famous intellectuals of the early part of the 20th century, 20s, 30s, and 40s, said, wasn't it that God chose the Jews? The Jews chose God. The whole philosophy of Judaism in that one little epigram. How odd of God to choose the Jews, it's not so odd the Jews chose God. Abraham chose God, rather than saying that Hashem, God, chose Abraham. Now, what's this notion all about? We have a responsibility. People argue that we're not necessarily intrinsically better than the non-Jew, although the Kuzari might in fact say there's a racial superiority involved over here. By and large, most Jewish thought will say that Jews are not necessarily intrinsically better than the non-Jewish world, but rather we have a greater responsibility of leading the world towards that messianic era that we spoke about. Not that we have a great but we impose these uh, we obligations on ourselves, right? It's well, we impose them upon ourselves, correct, and we teach the world these values. So have we, and again, one of the questions that we began with, going back a few weeks ago... Of course not. No, I don't need to get We have the keeper of the door. I don't keeper of the door. The right-wing Christians insist, even though we don't want to, uh, they insist, that God right. showed us, even though right. we, we may not want to accept that. Correct. Right. Right. So right. So what we would say that based on the book of Shemot, this notion of Abnev Had, God did choose us to teach the world. So I raised the question that we raised at the very beginning. Are we successful or not? So again, my claim would be, and it's interesting that nobody has made this claim, that going back 4,000 years, there was Abraham who was one person out of about 10 million or less people, Right? Ten million people was Abraham's notion of Selakam Ushbad, that's the which flows inevitably from Selam Elohim. We had made all this point. And what you have then is Christianity two thousand of Abraham, which today is one point eight billion people. Similarly later you have Islam, which is one point two billion people, all of which are offshoots of Abraham's ideology, 
All of this is told to Abraham and Bereshit. It's such an obvious point, but nobody makes the point. Malachim Yosehu, king shall come from what? Nation shall come from your, from your loins. And at the end of the day, that's 3 billion people, which is 50% of the world. We went from 1 over 10 million with the notion of Tzedakah Mishpat and Tzedakah all the way to half the world. And of course, what's that? it's much more than that. Because every civilized person who was part of the Western civilized world would believe in this notion, would accept this notion that just and righteous is an inevitable consequence of seeing each individual human being as the middle king. So we have impacted extraordinarily so, although it's not been a linear process, it's rather been a sine curve process. There have been high points on this map, such as United States, 20th century, welfare state is a high point, and Nazi Germany is a low point of completely finitizing, quote-unquote, the human infinite potential. You are finitely important to me, and therefore I can kill you. You are worth nothing to me, therefore I can kill you. This we have begun with. But we are, in fact, impacting. The notion of a welfare state is, of course, a Jewish idea of Shemitah Yovel. One of the questions I ask from every single final I give is, give me examples of the modern capitalism where you see a direct link between biblical values and modern capitalism. And these kids have to come up with these answers. You know, the fact that the, uh, the Liberty Bell says, Shukran, shall proclaim freedom throughout the land, is Vayikra, We all know that. Right? So, these, perhaps one might say, are the four or five values that are undercurrent. But of course, there are many more. The stream is a strong stream of biblical values throughout Tanakh. If we speak about Tehlum Elohim, Tikkun Olam, Zachar Mitzvah, or Onish, Chaitan Shok, Amnit these are essential core biblical values that percolate throughout the entire Tanakh. There are of course other ideas, ideals, and values that we've tried to highlight as we took our journey through the biblical books. Um, Wait, David was first. David? Oh, he left. Good. Oh, yes. I was going to write it down. <coughs> Tell me. We say it every week. We've said it every week. But can we really be... Should we really feel so satisfied that, that the Jews themselves have done the job? Or is it just the attractiveness of the Bible's message that has gotten through to these three billion people? Have we really done the work? Or is it just the book that has done the work? Good point. I think the answer is that the Torah's insight to this notion is another epigram that we had said, which is Torah is not interested in creating a community of religious individuals, but rather Torah is interested in creating a religious community, thereby implying that it's the religious community that's going to impact. It's the religious community that acts by itself is going to be a model nation. We are a model nation. Whether we go out and proselytize or not, we shall not proselytize. We stopped proselytizing 2,000 years ago for the right reasons. Fine. But we still believe that the word is stronger than the sword and that our lifestyle is even stronger than the word. Which means that if you, by virtue of who you are, you're impacting upon the world. You want to, one idea one would say is that you want to leave this world for 120 years having said, I impacted in some positive fashion. And as a parent you're impacting, as a community leader you're impacting, as a political operative you're impacting, you're impacting. There are many who don't impact. But one, impact. Sorry? But that's not at all how the three billion people were impacted. 
Well, certainly by 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 being very general. By bringing forth Jesus, we impacted. He's a, he was a rabbinic that, Jew. That I would agree with. So he impacted upon 1.8 billion. He emerged from the Jewish people. Muhammad was clearly impactful because if you look, interestingly enough, the scripture of these 3 billion people are, are both, are all biblically based. The New Testament is of course respected, respects the Old Testament and refers to it and does not reject but rather accepts it. Number one. And the Quran has much of biblical material in it. Perverted the notion. We made the point. They have perverted, twisted and made nonsense of our, a lot of our ideas. That's true. But okay, it's not a perfect system. We agree it's not a perfect system. Jews are not perfect Jews either. Correct? Not doing that. But on the other hand, on the other hand, we have done a very good job at this. If I were God, I'm not. However, if I were, that's why I'm using the subjunctive. If I were. If I were. How, how have we done a good job? As David is saying, maybe, maybe our, our books did our books did a good job. Who carried the book? Did who we do the good yes, job? Yes, we did. Who carried the message? We carried the message. Were we we the book. We read the book. Were we an influence on the Christians that way of the of Middle Ages? Were. I don't know. The first Christians were all Jews. They yeah, were yeah, okay. Christians. But as time went on, were we an influence? A positive influence? In one way or another. To so different degrees. In different ways. We could speak next year about, for example, and really, you, so you don't come to second class, but really, the second class Ironically, I didn't plan it this way, but somebody over here pointed out to me, and it's quite correct, that really the second class dovetails on the first class. Meaning, what's the second class all about? How non-Jewish authors reacting to or speaking about Jews and Judaism. Took Mark Twain. Here's Mark Twain that wrote the most famous publication of, of an 1898 Harper's Magazine, the circulation of five million out of seventy million Americans. Right? It's a pretty big percentage. Saying how great the Jews are. It's an extraordinary article. Every Jew should read it. James Michener, who wrote this book 40 years ago, which now in print, now is 35 million copies, 40 years later, translated into five languages. Astounding. It's an extraordinary book about Jews and Judaism. And my point then was that every decade, somebody's writing a book from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and Mark Twain, that was the idea of the second class, are all non-Jews. In the 70s, you remember some college days, Ernest van der Haat wrote, who's a social anthropologist, very well regarded, and wrote a book called The Jewish Mystique. And it's a very well regarded book. Ernest who? Van der Haag. Van der Haag. Not Jewish. Uh, van der Haag, yeah. Right, so he wrote that book. In the age was Paul Johnson, who wrote one of the best histories of the Jewish people, called The History of the Jewish People, by Paul Johnson. He writes in the beginning. Again, I want to do this with you, and maybe next year we'll do it next year. Why, he writes, why am I a good Christian writing about the Jewish people? I, I only write about Christians. Why are we writing about Jewish people? He raised the question. And similarly in the 90s, how James Cale wrote, how a, uh, called the Jewish, the uh, gift to the Jews, how a small nomadic tribe affects the way we all think and feel. So that's amazing. We inspire these non-Jewish authors, in this case, all positively. All positively. It's astounding. How did it happen? Because James Cale happened to see a Jew someplace. It's Thomas Cale, right? So, thank you. How he sourced out a Jew supply says, you know, these Jews are incredible people. I want to come back to that if you want to hang around for a little extra time, how James Bishop concludes his book. We're going to see that. Okay, let me just go on because we really have to cover a lot of ground um, today. I came back to the historical fact that after the downfall of Rome, Christianity, the Christians transmitted the Jewish message Correct. to right. the pagans, they civilized 
The pagans who were Romans and Greeks and all that. Exactly. That's uh, my point. One other point. You said linear, and what was the other term you used? Uh, parab par parabola? Sine curve. It's a sine curve. Sine curve. That's from geometry, 12th, 11th grade. Sine curve. 10th grade. Sine curve. Sine curve. Sine curve. Up and down. Sine curve. Sine curve. Sine curve. I'm sorry. S-I-N-E. Sine curve. Yeah, sorry. We also mentioned the distinction between the five books of Torah, Moshe, the 19 books of the Nevi'im, and the 11 books of the Ketuvim itself, known as, of course, Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. And last week, we spoke about the books of Ketuvim, how they differ, in essence, from the first two categories of books. We had our famous sign where one is theocentric and one is homeocentric. Right, where the books were, which go in verses from God to the people, that's five books of Moses and the 19 books of the Nabeen, although they're different, five and 19 are different in a essential way, which we spoke about, they still emerge from God to the Jewish people. And on the other hand, Ketuvim is inspired literature of human beings. It's not average books, but it's inspired literature of human beings about the interaction between divinity and humanity. That's the books of Ketuvim. And of course, we went through all these books. I'll take you to Tanakhs and just look at the books because I do want you to familiarize yourselves with the books of the Bible. As a Jew, you should be familiar with all these 24 books of the Bible, known as Kafta al Sefarim. You should look at them, read them Genesis, Exodus, look at the English, look at the Hebrew. Take this list, Zerat, and put it next to your, uh, on your refrigerator and look at it every Sunday. Every literate Jew should be familiar with the books of the Bible. Moshe, Yoel, Amos, Ovaya, Yonah, Michal, Kosha, saying that I ask of all my students to memorize the order of books. The order of books. One has to know what the books of the Bible are about. And I provided you with a two or three or four line quick essence or substance of what each book's about. Your ale is about a divine principle. One of the ideas, ideas and values. As is the book of Shoftim. Somebody asks you what's Shoftim all about, you would tell them. The last line of Shoftim. If you're asked about your ale, you should have one or two lines about what each book's about. What's Habakkuk about? The prophet who complains about God's injustice and that Assyria is destroyed in Babylonia and now Babylonia is on the rise which is going to destroy the Jewish people. He doesn't get God's ways in the world. Come back to that. You want to know the decision between the exilic prophets and the post-exilic prophets. We spoke about that issue as well. Finally, come to the books of Ketuvim. We spoke last week about each of the books. We emphasized Tehillim mainly because Tehillim is a critical work in our liturgy, in Tehillah. You want to know what Tehillim is really all about. And I gave examples how David Hamilton, as a sensitive poetic soul, theologically inclined, of course, seeing the world through a theological perspective, how he reacts to life's events, all of life's events, the death of a child, defeated war, the birth of a child, God's universe. All of that is grist for Davina Melech's mill of songs, classic works. Spoke about Mishle, Proverbs. It's a teacher to a student. Mishle is a teacher to a student, which, and the primary mode of teaching is a mashal, a metaphor. It's how you communicate from one perspective, the teachers, to get to where the student is at. You have to bridge that gap. A mashal, though inaccurate often, is the way that one bridges that gap. You want to teach your children. I give examples of teaching children. You're not going to lecture philosophically or conceptually. You're going to try to use a narrative form, a mashal. Narrative. Our brains are wired that we are attracted to all kinds of narratives. Hence the popularity of novels, of 
of uh, movies because we love novels, we love stories. I could bore you for two hours in a lecture and just all of a sudden tell you a story. I have a story, everybody pops up. I've done it a hundred times. I try to bore people. And I do it really well. Yeah. I try for that, yes. You see, I, I, I see that in shoe. So I bore all these people and all of a sudden I say, I have a story to tell. person wakes up. It's astounding how it works. They're falling asleep and all of a sudden, welcome, good to see you. They all of a sudden wake up and say, I use the word, I have a great story. And of course, one of the greatest stories, if I make a story up, that's less straight. What's a greater story? A story about if it's true. And sometimes, and I never want to speak, you know, uh, I never want to make up a story when I say it's true, it's not true. But if I'm really subtle about certain things, I won't tell them. They'll say, maybe it is, maybe it is true. And of course, when I say a story happened to me personally, then they really take off on that. You know how much mods I got out of this Israel trip I took? <laughs> Fantastic trip. I got uh, tremendous. I have tw- tons of stories on it. But again, as I mentioned to you with regards to Theolene, a rabbi looks for these things. A rabbi does want, in fact, extrapolate from life's experiences narratives that are going to serve as good pedagogic lessons. I do it all the time. You have to do it. Whether it's a song you hear, whether it's a sight you've seen, that's going to be grist for your next sermon. And again, people want to hear rabbinic sermons that focus on stories. But of course, that can go to excess. And if you only tell stories, then they miss the ideas, ideals, and values that should inform the substance of your narrative. It should be about ideas, ideals, and values, not about stories. The, the latter only has to illustrate the form. Good. So we spoke about Tehillim, we spoke about Mishleh. We went through all these books, they all fit into the category of either something philosophical or something historical. Lamentations Echa is a historical work. It's about Hurban ben Amidash. Song of Songs is a poetic, we'll call it philosophical work. Esther is a historical work. But all of these works embody biblical ideas in one way or another. Instead, one might say that it's a work about Esther Panim, God's hidden face, and yet the Jews are saved through human agency. One has to understand what this book is really all about. It's there. Or one might ask the question, what's coherent about it? It's a philosophical view of life. What's life really all about? Asking the most fundamental questions about life. What is life really all about? Coherent asks the question. We dealt with all the biblical books with the exception of the book of Eov. Job. Interesting is that three books of Ketuvim are known as Sifre Emet. Which are those three? Which are books of truth, Emet? And the books of Ketuvim, which are Emet books, which are truthful books? No. <laughs> That's a good answer, of course, you're right. The rabbi said Emet is Eyob Mishle Etelim. Written backwards. It's backwards. Tehillim Mishleyot is Emet. The rabbis want to, us to focus on these three books for a particular reason. Right? We could analyze and figure out why that is. Or in scholarly literature, these three books are known as part of what's known as wisdom literature. Wisdom literature. Right? Now, so we've already spoken about Tehillim Mishleyot. We want to focus on now the book of Eov. What is Eov all about? We left it for last out of chronological sequence for a very good reason. It's a book that of course should be studied in its entirety on its own. We're only going to provide a very, very brief overview. When was it written is an important question. But at the logical, we always want to know the historical context out of which a book emerges. So let's begin by raising the question, when, when was the book of Eov written? 
So the answer is? We don't know. We don't know? We don't know. Nobody seems to know. From what I've read. Nobody seems to know. It's, very, it's said to be very old, but no one's really sure. I'm not happy with your answer. Okay. You might be on the right track, but I'm happy with your answer. It was written before... It certainly is a machloket. Sorry, before... It was written before the Torah. No, no, well, yes and no. The, the Gemara itself, the Vatra has a, a four or five way debate as to when Eeyog was written. So the rabbi is saying that we do know when Eeyog was written. It was written, A, one says, third time of Abraham. B, time of Moshe. C, Lo Hayav Lo Nivra. That it was never a historical book at all. And therefore saying to us that it doesn't matter what is written. It's not a historical work. Rather, the Talmudic debate seems to conclude that it was trans-historical. It's not a, a book that's to be understood in historical terms. Why? Because its message is universal. It's trans-historical, trans-temporal. Call it trans-temporal. <laughs> Furthermore, one might say, where is it? It's oaths. Right? We look at the book of the Yov. Open up for a second. Tehillim Mishlei Yov, which is... On page 1657. Good. Ish hayab is os. Where is os? So if we were to trans-biblicize that... Well, page 1657. Five, seven. If we were to trans that place, we'd find there's no country called os any place. The term does not appear anywhere else in the Bible. And in fact, there's nobody else in the Bible except with the exception of a person called Eyob in Yehezkel, chapter 14 who is one of the wise people. But of course, it may be the case that Yehezkel is already working with Eyob. If his work predated Yehezkel, Yehezkel is historical. So it's possible that Yehezkel is only quoting what was already known as a wise person. He's quoting Noach Daniel and Eyob as wise, famous, non-Jewish people. Is Eyob Jewish? Not necessarily whatsoever. He probably was not Jewish. We know of no reference to Uth and no other person known as, I- as Eov. If you want to analyze the name, Eov might be related to the word Oyev. What does Oyev mean? Right. Enemy. Who's he an enemy of? Himself. Of himself, excellent answer. And of? God. God, also excellent answer. And of? Satan. Satan, excellent answer, good. And of? His friends. His friends, correct. We're going to see how all that plays into all of this. So now, we, would, we could argue that Eov is both trans-historical or trans-temporal as well as trans-geographical. That is, the key to understanding Europe is its universality, its message. And here, interestingly enough, often you've heard the notion that there exists either a harmony or a tension between form and content. That's an artistic notion. The interesting book uh, by Susan K. Langer, who was one of the foremost philosophers of art in the 20th century, Susan K. Langer. And um, she wrote a book based on this notion, what is art really all about? Asking the right philosophical questions about art. Art is not what you think it is, from a philosophical point of view. Right? So one of the questions you ask about art is the relation between form and content. Right? In the um, most extreme form of this, I guess you'd say, is a work by some of my kids, right? When they were three years old, what did they do? They wrote this great art that I could probably sell for a million or two dollars. Mordecai especially, because he was a pretty violent kid. So he would write, you know, do something with, you know, 
Now, here's the case of the same thing. Jackson, Jackson, Pilate, the same thing. He gets millions and I get zero, but same thing. Here's form. That form expresses something. A message. Form and message. What are they both all about? We're going to see that, in fact, the form, the manner of formulation of its message is very far from traditional in the book of Eov. Here, it's the form has much to do with the message, as you'll see in a few moments. Here we therefore have a trans-historical, trans-central, trans-geographical book, a book with a universal message. A book that deals with a universal problem, or I might say, the universal problem. The universal problem in that is a problem that is so massive in scope that affects every human being in every society. One should be aware that there is a Babylonian Job. Babylonian Job is a book with the very same theme as this. We're going back even prior to Job. The Babylonian Job can in fact be dated to about 2,000 years before the Common Era. Right, 2,000 years before the Common Era. Others, some will say that our Job is a reflection of the Babylonian Job. Ibn Ezra, of course, has the opinion that our Job was only a translation of another work. He didn't know about Babylonian Job. The book is edited by Lambert, one of the famous Surrealists of the 20th century. But Ibn Ezra just knew this is not a book that was written originally in Hebrew. It's too difficult, though, but could not have been written originally in Hebrew. So he sees it as a translation of another language. He might have been right about that. And yet, what happened over here is the rabbis adopted this work because it contained such a critically important basic message. The rabbis may have adopted and adapted. Adopted the work and then adapted it so that it becomes Judaic in form. Now, well, that? Two interesting points. First of all, there was a play called J, uh, J.B., I think. There's J.B. on Archibald McLeish. Extraordinary work. And Carl uh, uh, Jung has also worked on Job as well. This, uh, uh, exploring the cycle. Carl Jung. Oh, yeah. uh, Harold Also, I'm coming to him in a minute. That thing when yeah, I'm not happy with him. Don't mention his name. I don't like him. But I'll talk about him in a minute. Get back to him in a second. We'll get to him. Okay, so this problem is massive in scope. A problem that affects every human being, every society. One cannot escape the problem with which the book of Eov deals. What's the problem? We all learn about it. We all know about it. And it's interesting how in high school, when it was presented to us, none of us appreciate I didn't appreciate it. Most of us were not affected. It's a problem that's not only intellectual, it's existential. It's experiential. And to understand that it is both existential, experiential, and intellectual is a key to understanding what this problem is all about. It's known as Sadiq Mirabo. Right? It's a very famous problem. How do we translate that? Why do the righteous suffer? And why do the evil prosper? Right? That is the question the Book of the Yog deals with. As Harold Kushner puts it, in 1981, why do bad things happen to good people? When bad things? I think he made it a point to say when, no, when bad things happen to good people, not why. No, I don't believe you're right. I think he made that uh, point. 22 years since I read the book, but I believe... It's, why bad things happen to good people? Why? I think it's why. Harvey, how do you make the same mistake as, as him? It is why. It is why. Thank you. Yeah. Why? Because you said why do, but it's just why bad things happen. It's why. All right. Why bad things happen to good people? And of course, Hal Kush is a conservative rabbi Natick. He's a wonderful human being. He's a very fine person, and he's all wrong. He's all wrong because he's all wrong. 
because he didn't understand, he didn't approach the problem philosophically. He approached the problem personally. What's his personal approach to the problem? He had a child that was born with a very serious disease, horrible disease, <coughs> wherein it's called progeria. Uh, premature aging. Correct, good. And he saw his son, and he's a, he says, my son is a normal person, I'm a normal person, I'm not aging special, and I understand why my child is going to die at the age of three as an 80-year-old man. Right? Horrible disease of watching a child to age that way. We all agree. So he came to the conclusion that God is all good, and the way that philosophers formulate this problem Okay, very close touch is not so easy to follow. There are four propositions that cannot coexist in a logical world. What are the four? God is good. God is all good, sorry. God is omniscient, which means all-knowing. God is omnipotent, omnipotent which means uh, all-powerful. all-powerful. So God is all-powerful, God is all-knowing, Right? And God's good. What's the fourth that cannot coexist with these three in any sane universe? Evil. evil. Yet evil exists. Now, evil cannot exist if God is all good. And God, if God is all known, He knows about evil. If God is all good, then evil cannot exist. If God's mythic, he's, he's all powerful. So you have to eradicate evil. Hanabam in, in the Middle Ages approaches problem by saying, evil is an illusion. In Moran Bukhim, evil does not really exist. Evil is simply the lack of... Good. Lack of good. Good. So it's not really existing. Like, I'm just problem that way. I don't want to pursue that. Like darkness is the absence of... Uh, right. So I don't want to pursue that. That's because it's not my favorite discussion of this evil. It's a problem. But how Kushner... Some philosophers will say, maybe God's not omniscient. Kushner says, God's not omnipotent. Because if God were omnipotent and He's all good, Kushner says, I cannot live with God is not all good, so we all accept this one, God is all good, right? And God is omniscient, Kushner says, yes, that's also true, and if my son's dying, that means that there is evil in the world, so how can that be? His answer was, God is not omnipotent. If God, who is all good and all knowing, which is what He accepted, and this evil, obviously God would have cured my son had He been able to, God's not able to do so. Now, what Krishna should have done was to write a much better work exploring this notion, A, philosophically. There are tons of books on that topic. It's a major, major issue in the area of philosophy. But as well, explore the issue Jewishly. There's much that one can write about this issue, which we'll come back to in a few moments. These are two books, but there's much, much, much that could be written about these issues. Theological Analysis of the Holocaust and Theological by Berkowitz. We'll come back to that. So, Kushner's book is not a very good book on this topic. On the other hand, about 17 or 18 years ago, I spoke about this book as a book review in Brooklyn. And there were women there, it was a women's book club, who had lost children. Mrs. Salama was one, Nancy Salama's mother, who had lost a child. And a few other women, there was 30 or 40 women there. And at that point, most, if not all, of the women felt the book was wonderfully helpful to those who grieved. So there's something valuable in the book as well. Philosophically, I think it's terrible. And Jewishly, I think it's terrible. Well, Let alone that it's heretical. Yeah, sorry? Kush's book. Kush's book. Right. But it, they found comfort in it. And what can we say if we didn't experience Barmanan, that horrifying scenario of losing a child? It's, it's every parent's, obviously, greatest fear. Um, I difficult. say so. Kush's uh, book, the way I saw it, um, God is uh, uh, a God who cares, 
but also a God who is limited. Exactly. Uh, because, for example, uh, uh, God cannot uh, eliminate evil without also infringing on our uh, autonomy and free will. Uh, so that, I think, we'll is the essence of Christian Correct. We'll book. come back to the book in a few minutes. Yes, correct. Yes, John? Okay, good. So now, is Eeyore the race to... Oh, sorry, Harvey. Sorry, I just got okay. one sentence in defense of this book. Uh, I, I defended it. Uh, it's terrible Jewish and philosophical, but it's good on a human level. I got something different from it. I, I, someone had given it to me when my daughter was ill. And Why did I give it to yeah. I got from it that people say, oh, why did God do this to me? Why did God do this to my child, to my for this and this and this? Why did God make this person sick? What I got from that book was God didn't make the person sick. God put nature in the world. He put the whole system that we would discuss either people people do bad things, they shoot other people, or perhaps it's pollution, or perhaps it's uh, uh, some sort of, uh, you know, uh, carcinogens. Whatever it is, God didn't do it. It happened as a result of the nature that... Is God responsible for any evil that could have been eliminated? Talking about two different types of evil. One is, one is human evil. Well, hold on. One is human evil, and one is natural evil. In 1732, there, in 1732, there was, there was the Lisbon earthquake which three or four thousand people died. Those who were on one side of the street died, the other side of the street lived. Voltaire reacted by writing the book Candide about this particular issue. And therefore, Pangloss said in the play and in the book, it's the best of all possible worlds, and he was laughed at. It was, it was a satire on that issue because Voltaire said it cannot be that because you happen to live on this side of the street, you die, that's as you live. That, that, that's evil. Natural evil, God should be able to control, but not human evil, because your point's well taken about human evil. The Nazis, as Brooklyn points out, is an issue of human evil. Human evil is not God's problem, you're right. But natural evil, illness, perhaps is. Unless we were able to somehow translate all of natural evil into human evil. I could do that. Through alchemy, but I could do that. All of them? Yeah, no. Uh, not well, all of them, but a lot of them. I can see where, if I may... Uh, if we have famine, which could be considered a natural evil, uh, if, if, uh, we can say that that could be attributable to bad behavior, uh, lack of good behavior. Biblically if a farmer, uh, if a farmer is lazy and don't, doesn't cultivate his crops, so that's still going to have famine. Good. So that's uh, I can see uh, earthquakes and uh, volcanic eruptions. I think linked to uh, okay, good. That's, that's that why I said almost. I said through alchemy. Alchemy is not real. I said through alchemy and almost. You're right. I mean, eventually you'll catch me at one point or other. Okay, but we'll talk about that as we go along. Okay, back to Eeyore. So is Eeyore the first to deal with this question? Is Job the first to deal with this question? It is a massive question we all agree. It is the question we all agree. The most important question that anybody that suffers has that question. Anybody that has a child that's suffering, anybody that is personally ill, or who's playing craft, whatever it may be, is going to speak about this question, whatever this question. The answer is no, of course, this is an issue which, again, Abraham dealt with. The Gemara says that Abraham dealt with this question when he talks about the issue of Sodom Amorah, the question of the righteous and the evil suffering. God, are you going to kill, what is Abraham's issue over here? The righteous and the evil. Abraham, initially, and if you really read this section carefully, what one should do, if we ever come back here next year, then we should take selected chapters of various biblical books and see how they would, how they, what the ideas are involved. If you read very carefully, and one read the Bible, I read it very, very carefully, you would see that there are two issues involved in Abraham's issue. One is, why should the righteous die with the wicked? 
But then I'm going to have to something else. The Ramadan says what? What's the next point? I want to save the evil for the sake of the righteous. <laughs> Two different questions. But Abraham is dealing with the very question of don't allow you, the judge of the entire earth, to do something which is a lack of justice. What would be a lack of justice? Not if you kill the evil. They deserve death. But if you wipe out the righteous. So Abraham dealt with it. Moshe, dealt with this issue as well. In which context? Sorry? Post Hatayel, right? Shemot Lamed Gimel, correct. When God says, "What are you? What are you all about, God? What are you ways? What are you ways in the world?" I want to understand you. I want to understand this principle. Then Moshe dealt with it. Come back to Gemara Berachot as well. But Yirmiyahu also says, "You bet." Lama Derech Hashayim Saleha Bazu Kol Bukde Aven. Why are the wicked so prosperous? I'm a righteous person, God. Why am I suffering so much? Why am I being persecuted? Why did they try to assassinate me twice? I don't get it. What's your system over here? And of course, Habakkuk as well, Perik, Aleph, and Bet, dealt with the very same question. But, there's no sustained discussion in the entire Tanakh or Bible of the problem of evil as there is in the book of Eyob. Eyob is the book, writ large, which talks about this issue. What is this book really all about? It's about challenge and response on a threefold level, as you pointed out before, namely, Eyob and his wife, challenge and response, Eyob and his friends, challenge and response, God and Eyob, Eyob and God, challenge and response, and Eyob and himself, challenge and response. It's a book about a personal, intense soul-searching. It's a book about integrity and hypocrisy. Who are hypocritical? It's David. Friends, friends, good. Quote the pasuk for me. You don't see? You don't see it? You don't see it? I know. That's what I'm pointing out. Yeah, you see it. What does it say in Eov? Kilo debatim elai nochona ki'avdi Eov. Eov, you have to pray for your friends. They have sinned against me. Your friends have sinned. They cannot pray for themselves. Why can they not pray for themselves? Because when you lack integrity, when you're hypocritical, you cannot pray. The essence of prayer is honesty. Saying what is God? Hashem says, "Ki lo debatam elai nechona nechona nachol with correct keavdiv as Eyov. Eyov, for all of his yelling and screaming and challenging, spoke with integrity and honesty. His friends did not. So this is a book about integrity and hypocrisy. It's a book about rebellion and acceptance. Rebellion of Eyov and his ultimate acceptance of the divine message, not answer, as we'll see in a few moments." This, of course, is therefore the most challenging and the most profound of biblical books. And perhaps one might say it's the most religious of all the biblical books. There is no book where you're going to find such a sustained argument against God as Eov provides, defense of God as his friends provide, and ultimately the resolution. The book is to be divided into three sections. I'm just going to do this briefly overview for you. <coughs> which is a prologue oh thank you a prologue chapters 1 and 2 which of course are classics these two chapters are classics that I would say every little should know but extraordinary poetic work fascinating and again as you pointed out before there are many modern writers that relate to this work. Whether it's Archibald McLeish who wrote a book of J.B. Or, or Carl Newman wrote Job. All these people are fascinated by these first two chapters. Then comes the drama of dialogue. 
And finally, one might say, epilogue, which either could be God's response to Job, which is chapter 38 to 42, or one might say, just the last chapter, which is a very all's well that ends well kind of ending. So that's where you want to put the epilogue. Various people put it in various places. The prologue has six scenes, right? Six scenes. First scene is the narration about Eov. What's wonderful about Eov is that there's no other biblical personality who is described as so wonderful. Ish, Tam, Biashar, Yeruhim, Besarmirah. Four adjectives describe this man Eov. How do we describe Noah? Ish Sadiq Tamim Only two. Only two. Right? Moshe is viewed as Anar. Ish Moshe Anar. He's the most humble of people. We don't describe him as Tamim Biyad Sadiq Biyashad. Interesting. Abraham. What does that say about Abraham? Yes, something. Who said nothing? David, I knew it. What did he say? It's a left before the year Tamim. Interesting. Walk before me and be future tense, the year Tamim. Nobody's described as righteous. Not described. He's commanded. Commanded. Yeah, that's the difference. Exception. Sustained. Quiet. It took 11 weeks, David, but we got the first base. You're sustained, right? Go home. I wish Grace were here to see this. I'll come. We have witnesses here that, yes. It's interesting, by the way, in, in Auschwitz, the inmates put God on trial. Of course, yeah. And at the end of the trial, they condemned God. Yeah, that's but what the next minute, they said, gentlemen, we have to adopt a minister. Marv. Yeah. The, Wiesel, has, uh, Arbitum, yeah, yes, yes. Wiesel has a book. Wiesel has a book called The Trial of God, which is a great book. It's, it's, a, it's a very uh, passatic book. Is it's it a No. Well, such well, a actual. Well, by actual, I mean, it, it's, um, there's one of the greatest of models of literature is called, um, Svikolitz um, has a work. Svikolitz was a drama critic, just passed away two or three years ago. Two months ago, maybe, a while ago, I don't know. And um, it's, it's, the book is called Yasso Rosala's Plea to God, I think. It's, it's, a, it's a short story, 40, 50 pages. It's not in that book. It's, 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 a, it's a book called Out of the World One. It's a book called Out of the World when it has his plea to God. And it's a work a bit like this. Or in a famous analog to this, analog to what you're mentioning now, same issue, Rav Levyatek of Berdachev, one of the great Hasidic Rebbe's of a hundred years ago, has a situation where he does in fact put God on trial. Where a peasant comes to him on Yom Kippur and says, Rabbi, I was very, very, um, very evil. I was very wrong. What did I do? What would you do? He says, well, my daughter was raped this year. And I told God. And I said, and he says, I said to God, God, look at this year. I wasn't such a good Jew. I did many things that were wrong. But on balance, my daughter was raped. He says, so you forgive me, and I'll forgive you. That's what, in this, Rav Lydia says. And Rav Lydia says to him, what did you say that for? God was guilty, and you could have brought Mashiach. It's a very uh, pathetic. It's, it's brought down in a, in a wonderful play, a great play called Ish Hasid Haya. If anybody can get hold of it, uh, Ish Hasid Haya. Once there was a Hasid, and it's, it's brought down in a popular. It was on Broadway or off Broadway, where it was, where they have all of these kinds of challenges 
and this is Rabbi Yisak, and he was known to do this, and this is, you know, it's, it's part of Jewish folklore, but it's also part of what he was really all about, challenging God. So it's not surprising that there were Jews who, quote-unquote, put God on trial and raised these questions. So it's not literally true, but it's an expression of the love of God. And of course you're right, that after the trial we pray Mincha. It's not only true that, I mean, this is uh, Irving Greenberg in the 60s made the point to us that they would debate this question in the 60s, which was really the hotbed of theological activity. It was it came in the aftermath of the God is Dead movement, or the, by the Protestant theologians. It came in the aftermath of Richard Rubenstein's after Auschwitz, and that God is Dead, or God is now pagan, <laughs> in his version of things. He's a, he's a Chaim Berlin boy, uh, Richard Rubenstein. So we ended up in the wrong... <laughs> yeah, Chaim Berlin, and Harvard, and then God well, is maybe Dead. Maybe the point he was trying to say is we are worshipping the wrong God, uh, that we have misconceptions about God, and uh, well, that is the issue, uh, not that God is dead or not, uh, he the, said he thought God the old uh, conception of God may be dead, right. uh, maybe what we need to do is to correct our perception Which of God. Which point was that we have to have a, a pagan God called the earth Israel. You're Jewish and, and we have to deify the earth, so it's pagan, he had a pagan notion of God. But you're right, that our biblical notion of God is, is off, and because of the Holocaust, and therefore we have to, uh, we have to now worship a new concept of God, namely a pagan God. So, but he was off, we don't, um, I, I, it was a... Uh, uh, by the way, uh, God is dead, uh, something was written on the wall, God is dead, it was signed by Nietzsche. And Nietzsche below it, it said, Nietzsche is dead, and it was signed by God. Right, very famous, that's a very famous one. Right, that's a very famous one. So Greenberg would say exactly in that context that after discussing this whole entire issue, the ultimate conclusion was, let's pray Mincha. So they did. Fackenheim, Greenberg, was, you're right, that's what was going on over there. Hi, welcome. Prologue. The prologue is chapters 1 and 2. The dramatic dialogue is the next 36 chapters. Epilogue, 38 to 42. First scene, prologue, 16. First scene is description of Eov. Notice and tell me what this means. He has ten children, seven thousand sheep and three thousand camels, five hundred donkeys and five hundred oxen. What does all that tell you? He's rich. He's rich. He was, rich. but you're not seeing it just biblically. Why is that, did I point that out? Form. The form is very important over here. Why is ten children? So ten. So ten. Good. So what is all ten? What does that mean? Any good Mesopotamian person knows that ten was the perfect number. Why was that the perfect number? How do you say 11 in Hebrew? Which is 1 plus 10. How do you say 12? Shneem Asad, 2 plus 10, such and 10 is the perfect Mesopotamian number. Right? In America, based on another system, we use 6, 60. And 7 is the perfect number, which is 7 days of the week, 7 phase, uh, the phase of the moon. But in Mesopotamia, it was 10. So, hence, the origin may be Mesopotamia. What's the message that's going across to the number 10? He was a perfectly happy person. He was perfectly wealthy. He had 10,000 uh, sheep and ca- camels, 500 or 500 or 1,000 donkeys and oxen, and he had 10 children. Perfect harmony. Perfect person. Scene 2. A play goes on in heaven. The Satan comes. Where does the word Satan mean? Where does it come from? Mishut Ba'aris. I am floating, I am traveling the earth. Who initiates the conversation? God. What does God say? God says to him, Have you seen Abdi Yov? He said, In, in uh, chapter 1, 1657, verse 
6 all the children of God gather for God it's an incredible chapter Satan comes in their midst God says, Satan, where were you? Where are you going? And here's the plan of a name. We shoot for arts traveling throughout the earth, roaming. God says to him, have you paid attention to my servant Eeyore? Think about who else is called in the Bible? Moshe. Evan. Moshe. Ish Moshe. Right. Ish Moshe. Right. Evan. Good. To my servant Eeyore. There's nobody like him in the whole land. And God himself is witness to this. In case you were questioning the narrator in verse 1 or 2, so focused about this, God repeats the exact same formula. Tommy, Asher, Rimsamira, fourfold characterization of this man, Eeyore. Fantastic personality. So, Satan has a little bit of good old Jewish chutzpah, though it's not a Jewish work. What does Satan say to him? Oh, big deal. He's a perfectly wealthy, perfectly happy person. Hachinam, God asks the question with Hashelah. Satan adds with Hashelah. What is the answer to Hashelah? Is he for nothing? Does he fear God? You've given all this, fenced him off from all kinds of evil. You blessed him and everything else. Look what he has over here. However, if you, verse 11, Satan, answer this question, the God of Shalom, touch what he has, he will curse you. He will curse you. So God says, okay, it's a fair bet. Fair bet. Do whatever you want, but don't. Touch him. Sun goes. Now, the children are eating, and then you have, interesting, is that this is the second scene. The third scene of this prologue is the tragedy of the earth. And notice how there are four tra- tragedies. Okay, good. And while the first person is still narrating, the messenger, what happened to a sheep, they all died, taken away. <coughs> He's still speaking. The next one comes. What's the idea of that? The form. What's the form over here? The first one is still speaking and the next messenger comes. So what's the idea? Massive impact. No time to recover. And each time the text tells Odama Daber. If you look at, for example, um, 17. 17, 18, right. He's still speaking, also another person comes. 18. And the next one comes. And of course, the culmination of all this, he was a very real human being, so what's the culmination of all this? His children. You'd want my, you wanted my wealth, fine. And of course, very human, we all agree with this. But once you come to your children, by now your, your sons and your daughters were sitting and drinking and, and eating in their elder brother's house, a very powerful wind. So in the earlier two contexts, there was an enemy. Okay, good, it's an enemy. That's human evil. Now we're talking about natural evil. What's natural evil? A very powerful wind comes along, and it grabs, don't grab it, it grabs the four corners of the house, and they all die. Only I escaped to tell you. Eeyore mourns. He mourns. And in verse 21, in perhaps one of the most classic lines in all of the Tanakh, which we say all funerals sometimes, mm-hmm. I emerged naked from the womb of my mother. I will return naked there. God has given, God has taken. Let God's name be blessed. And Eeyore did not sin. End of scene three. Scene four. Again we have entree into the trial, tribunal, God's palace. And there is Satan again. Now, Satan comes along with all the other Benedohim, and we would have hoped that David Watt, that what we say in the summer on this issue, that we, what would we have hoped to be written over here? It's a very painful context to read. What would we have hoped? That the old uh, hope stands up and keeps his conviction. Who? No, that's not what I hope. No, no. Oh, that he caves? 
No. God would say to the Satan, you see. No, no, no. Exactly the opposite. He told us that crap already. Don't say anything. Right. He, he would tell us. We say. Don't even say anything. He sets him up again. He sets him up again. Don't set him up. Don't say anything. What's going to happen to him this time? That's what we said. Right. Exactly. Same. Same story. Same message. So, so what happens? We open our shame with Satan and we're trembling as we read the next line. Where did you go? It was a type of Israel. He said, Oh, Vienna Satan says, Oh, I won't be surprised. What's our next feeling? What's going to happen again? Tragedy is happening. Why is going to happen again? Because the same exact lines from chapter 1 happen in chapter 2. We know the house is going to fall on a yoke right now. And we're saying, Don't say that. Please don't say that. When he says, No, Shubhat, he says, What does Hashem say in verse 3 again? Again, again, what does he say? Hasam Tad, Ebukhat, just pay this to my servant, Yoke. Nobody's like him. He's telling the same exact thing. So what are you saying to yourself? Oh, you blew it. <laughs> you blew it, God. Why'd you say that again? But Yomir. He said, And he's still, God says, you See, I told you, he's still grabbing onto his Timimut. But still, and even more than that, you made me swallow him for no reason. So God's saying what? Ha ha! I was right and you were wrong. Now, we all know Satan. Is that going to work? The challenge. The challenge. So what's Satan saying? Oh, yeah? Or, flesh for flesh, or skin to skin. Whatever person has a gift for his soul. If you, verse 5, touch him and his flesh and his body, he will curse you. So what are you hoping for right now? Don't do it. Don't fall into the trap. Why are you doing this? It's obvious. Don't do this. So God, of course, in verse 6, we open Hashem of Satan, and look at, we're reading this, we're seeing this. This is a great narration. What are we seeing over here? He says to him over here, verse 6, He know that if he's in your hands, do whatever you want, however, let him live. Which is worse. Epshot, let him die if he's in such great pain. Torture. It's, this is torture. Son goes out happily and he smites Eeyore with boils, horrible, evil, painful, agonizing. He tries to scratch himself. He's sitting in dirt in Afad. His wife says to him, You still, Tamim, curse God. Classic line, verse 10. You speak like a fool. We shall accept the good from God, not the evil. And Eeyore did not sin. Now what's added over here? Bispatav. Now, according to Ramban over here, that he, that he sinned not verbally, but in his heart, he did. But that's not the predominant feeling about this. He still is a, shot-wise, textually, still is a righteous person. So now, that was scene four, the heavens once again. Scene five is the boils, utter agony. His friends come in scene six, and he's not able to even speak. They tear their clothes even though they are not mourning. Nobody died over here. But the agony of the man is so intense. They tear their clothes. They cannot speak. And that's the end of the prologue. Then we have the dialogue. Well, just another few minutes on Eov. And the dialogue raises the question, why is Eov suffering? Of course, Eov early on cursed the day that he was born. I wish I had come to the world. Cursed is the man who said to my mother... A child has been born to you. Cursed is that person. I should have died at birth. Why did God do this to me? And of course his friends, after seven days of mourning, have the answer. Why are you suffering? Because you sinned. 
and all of his three friends all have different formulations of the fact that he had actually sinned. He maintains his innocence. I didn't do anything wrong. And then of course he comes to challenging God himself. And finally we come to chapter 38. And again, this is a book that should be read its entirety. And we're very surprised by 38. Because we know that Eob really is blameless. The very worst that you're going to tell me is that he challenged God in chapters 3 through 37. But he got punished, or no, I should say, I'm sorry. But he was stricken before that chapter. Before that chapter. So what's going on over here? We know that he's innocent. Why did this all happen? Because Satan had a big mouth? Is that why this all happened? Terrible story from a moral point of view, although very engaging and intriguing. So finally, 38, we're waiting, waiting for the resolution. And what's the resolution over here? God answered from the whirlwind. From the whirlwind, God says, and now comes a very harsh, difficult answer. Who is speaking with foolishness without having any knowledge? Gird your loins, O man, I will ask you, where were you? Where were you when I founded the earth? Do you know anything? And God goes on and on, cutting him down and cutting him down. Very difficult. And finally, after this diatribe against Eob, by God, Eob answers God, chapter 40, verse 3 and 4. Finally, to all of this, beyond Eob, that's Chapter 40, verse 3, page 1721. He answers, I'm of small worth, what can I answer you? I clap my hand to my mouth. I spoke once, I will not speak again. Yehov accepts. All that Hashem says, all that God says to Yehov in the prior chapters, Eov sees indeed he does not know anything about the world. His perspective has changed. Has changed. Earlier, Eov understood from a certain point of view how God runs the world through scripture, through teachings, through popular understanding. Now he sees the splendor of God's creation. God is good and righteous. Eov had to suffer, but he too is righteous. And now, Eov is submissive and humble. So the question that you're going to ask is, does the book really answer the question? The answer is, no, it does not. But Eov is happy with the experience of God's presence. Chapter 42, Pasuk Bet, Eov says, God, you can do everything. Whatever you choose. Who is it, Eov says to God, who speaks without knowledge? So Eov adopts the divine position. I spoke, I didn't understand. There are great miracles beyond me. And he says at the end of the day, his humble response to God. Eov is happy with the experience. He saw God. He experienced divine dialogue. He saw God and Moses was not able to see God. I don't mean that he saw God literally. I meant that he had a confrontation and it was resolved. It was resolved in his dialogue. So at the end of the day, 
Eov is very happy. All's well that ends well. Eov is blessed. He has more children. He has fantastic children. If you look at verse... Ten, God returns to Yob all that he had when he prays for his friends. All of his brothers and sisters, verse 11, they comfort him on all the ra'ah that God brought upon him, which either means punishment or evil. And verse 12, when God blesses Yob more, in the end of the beginning, he has 14,000. What's 14,000? It's double. He doubled, right? He had 14,000. So on 6,000 camels, he had three, 1,000 bakar son of, of cattle, and 1,000 died, he had 500, and he has seven sons and three daughters. Ten perfect children. And he calls them by names, and there were no kids, verse 15, daughters as pretty as the Yob's daughters in all the land, gave them a portion. And after that, he was 140 years old, and he sees sons and grandsons for four generations, and he dies for those days. So, of course, you can raise the question, does the fact that you have ten new children make up for the ten children that you died, that died and lost? Okay, so that's not a relevant question from the point of view of the book of Eov. Simply, at the end, what we have over here is that his suffering is not due to sin and transgression, which is what we find from the response to his friends, which we mentioned before. That's chapter 42, verse 10. <coughs> is it verse 10? Verse um, 10 through 17. Yeah, all of this talks about Hashem speaks, verse 9. His friends go away. And Hashem looks up the face, right? All, the, all those verses talk about the anger of God against the, fr- the friends. Verse 7 through 10 the anger of God against the friends, because they thought that suffering comes because of sin, and at the end of the day, it does not. That's the book of Eov. Now, we don't have the time right now, but in this particular book, just to look at it for one second, Rabbi Soloveitchik, of course, has a very important article over here, written originally in Hebrew, called the Dosek, but translated here into English. And this book, in the opening the opening uh, paragraph speaks about the righteous who suffer. One would want to read this article in general. It's a classic article. And since it's in English, now you have no choice not to read it. It's about 50 pages. One of the darkest enigmas with which Judaism has struggled from the very dawn of its existence is the problem of suffering in the world. Moses, the master of the prophets, in a moment of mercy and grace of divine acceptance, pleaded with the Lord that he enlightened him concerning this obscure matter. Moses knocked at the gates of heaven and cried out, Show me now thy ways that I may know thee to the end that I may find grace in thy sight why and wherefore do afflictions and pain before man why and wherefore do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper from that wondrous morn when Moses the faithful shepherd communed with the creator of the world and sought a comprehensive solution to this question of questions prophets and sages through all generations have continued to grapple Habakkuk demanded satisfaction at the affront to justice Jeremiah King David and Psalms and Koheleth pondered this quandary. The entire book of Job is devoted to this ancient and mysterious query, which still agitates and disturbs our world and demands an answer. Why has God allowed evil to reign over his creation? And then he deals with this issue and of course in a very unique interpretation to the book of Job on page 58, he explains how Job really solves this issue. Similarly, we find in Berkowitz's book, A Faith After the Holocaust, an opening essay which I was going to Xerox, 
but no time to read it. Introduction, approaching the Holocaust. And here he tells us that we are only Job's brother. We're not Job himself. Who is Job? The ones, in the, the ones who died. Right. Or the ones who survived Auschwitz. They're Job. We're not Job. We're Job's brother. And here Berkowitz very uniquely speaks about the holiness of heresy, one might say. The holiness of heresy. We cannot say that those who um, we cannot say that those who question are wrong because we weren't there. And on the other hand, we can't say that they're right either because there are those who went through it and didn't question, and those who went through it and did question. So each one is right. We, we cannot we cannot um, answer this issue. The way he puts it over here, we are not Job and we did not speak and respond as if we were. We're only Job's brother. We must believe because our brother Job believed. There are those who went to the and believed. Many. Right? We must question because our brother Job so often could not believe any longer. Right? There are those who went to the and did not believe. This is not a comfortable situation. But it's not just in the year after the Holocaust. In it alone do we stand the threshold to an adequate response to the Shah if there be one. It is from this threshold alone that the break-in and the breakthrough must come. It must come without the desecration of the holy faith, those who believe, or the holy loss of faith of the Jewish people in the European hell. And if there be no breakthrough, the honest do is to remain at the threshold. If there is no answer, it's better to live without it than to find peace either in the sham of an insensitive faith or in the hypocrisy of a disbelief entertained by people who even have filled the tables of a satiated society. So these two works certainly deal with the problem of Job. So that, sorry, theological and halakhic reflections on the Holocaust. Edited by Bernard Rosenberg. Okay, these are two very good books to have. So we close this class with the Book of the Yov, which again deals with the most difficult and most profound problem in all biblical literature. David. My sense at the end here, first of all, first of all, this book is in the canon because, at least in my understanding, because the rabbis chose it to be. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And, and now nobody even questioned it as other books. And as you said, the, the rabbis adapt, adopted and adapted to, their, to fit their message that they wanted to send to us. Right. So the message at the end is, there is no answer, you just have to accept this. If this happens to you, even if you're righteous, you just have to accept this. So yes and no. I said yes and no. There's a, there's a d- dilemma there in, in Berkowitz's answer, because the rabbis who, okay, yes and no, but if, if, if my position is accurate, my opinion, that the rab- this is the, ma- the message that the rabbis are sending us, if you suffer and we know you're righteous, you just accept it, then the, their answer, if they experience the Holocaust, which, which they did, mm-hmm. they did they did experience a Holocaust of sorts, mm, of course. Roman persecution, etc. Of course, yeah, absolutely. Then that's their answer to it. That's That would be the rabbinic answer to, to this issue. It depends on the book. And the Holocaust. The same, I, I'm, I'm just an analogy, I'm saying, they, right. that's how they would answer the Holocaust. I'm not sure, 100%. I mean, uh, quite, th- this book may have been written before the Roman persecutions, before the no, Holy no, 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 That's not important. Because my, my thesis is that it's canonized after by the rabbis, and they adapted it. At what point was it canonized? Well, it was canonized rabbinically. At what point? Pre-Hurban, post-Hurban? We're not sure. We don't know when it was canonized. We really don't know that. 
No. Oh, so when was the actual candidate they don't know. in the Bible? We don't know. Wasn't that in the third century or fourth century or something? We don't even know that. You know, that's surprising. Something so phenomenal like that, we don't Sorry. know when or where it happened. It seems very strange. If I were there, I would have told and made you aware of it, but I wasn't there. I don't know. Yeah, would have said. The most significant event in Jewish history somehow seemed to be the answer is a We don't know where or when or why. That's strange. It's very strange. You're right. There's a very important book by Sid Lyman, who's a, prof- a superstar professor, and he wrote a book on canonization of Scripture. So that's a good book to read, and it happened in stages, and it's a little bit more subtle than I'm saying right now, but I would read his book, and that would help. Who's the author? Sid Lyman. Uh, Lyman. L-I-E-M-A-N. Lyman. Oh, oh, oh Snail Lyman Lyman. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he wrote about that issue. One second. Um, coming back to... So the rabbinic... Right. Oh, See the other now. Interesting. Again, you, I, I would not answer your question because I think you should read a religious article on this. And he is a rabbinic response to this. I think appropriate and appropriate rabbinic response to this. His interpretation of it, which may be the Shulchan which may be the interpretation of it, of has to be read of this book of yours, which is in this article. I've had to deal with this issue. Similarly, Berkowitz is that rabbinic? Is Berkowitz a rabbinic answer to this? I would think yes. So that. So, that brings so it's us not as simple as you're saying. That brings us to a broader issue, which is not really part of this class, but <laughs> that rabbinic thought is a development with time, and we should accept rabbinic thought and its evolutionary path. That's a bigger question. Where do you say that's evolutionary? Because, you, you, because I say that this is an ancient rabbinic answer, and you're saying these are modern rabbinic, which... This oh, may, they may be the shot of what you're saying. That's the interpretation or the uh, reading of it. So that, they, what they're saying may be the ancient answer. So if you read this first, then decide is that shadow now. Okay, I have uh, one more point to make that I'd like to make before finishing this class, and that is we've provided, as you well know, hopefully by now, a conceptual overview, page one, page two, of Tanakh. But part of what we want to do from the very beginning is not only to provide a conceptual overview, but historical as well. With the notion that one cannot understand the Bible without understanding the historical context out of which the Bible emerged. Each one of the books of the Bible emerged from a certain historical context. The Bible is a complex book that ranges over a thousand years. Oh, yeah, what the ranges over a thousand years, and therefore one has to certainly know these dates. These are 15 biblical dates that everybody has to know. Well, do we have enough copies? I never made enough copies. Page one coming. Page one coming. Share. Yes, there's one and two. Please share them. I intentionally didn't make enough just so I could feel good that I ran out. So we'll only know some of the dates. Right. We'll only get enough dates. So we have to get right both classes. Right. Everybody get page two? No. No. Oh, no. Wait a minute. Okay, I think I have one here. Where's page one? That's my original. Okay, what page is that? Two. Okay, here's page two. Page two. But you could share them and, and um, I, I don't know why I do that. It's almost psychological. I know the big enough copies or anything. I don't know. You yell at your son for taking long shower. <laughs> I do that too. Yes, but it's just cheapness. That's all. Okay, now. Here we go. If, if you don't have them, um, does anybody have an extra old copy machine they want to donate from the cars? Is that a good idea? Yes? I mean, we must all have someone who has an old copy machine, you know? Chucky's question. Sorry, I'll keep you waiting. Oh, um, thank you. Thank you. I found the most troubling thing about yours, not the story of Job, but the prologue. And that's what I don't understand. We all had experience of good people suffering, good people dying, and faith in God, and, and things like that. 
but how does the Bible present right, God absolutely. being manipulated by Satan? And what would happen if Job, if God was straight with Job and he said, the reason I did this is because of Satan? Right, I think it's a very important question. It's a very important question, not for now. Okay. It's really answered part and parcel of, of a whole discussion about Job. Yeah, and one would want to see how the biblical commentaries, we did this other summer, a little bit. And uh, one would want to see how the biblical commentaries dealt with that very question. Because it is, it's an obvious question. It's absurd. Why do the rabbis accept this? And that's an interesting part of canonization. Rabbis did not have to accept these two chapters. But they did. The question is, what does this add to the story that they felt necessary? It would be easy to change the story, rather. The rabbis could have done that, but they didn't. For whatever reason it may be. So let's go now to these uh, two pages. It takes five minutes to go through. It's the historical context out of which the ideas, ideals, and values emerge. Okay? And take note that, of course, the biblical books have to be viewed with a date and event in history. So it's a very nice chart. Five books of Moses. 20th, 19th century, before the Common Era. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 17th, 15th century, invasion of the Hyksos. Right? The Hyksos were those who invaded Egypt, took over Egypt, and then, Yosef, that was an indigenous Egyptian king who retook the throne. Yosef was able to be appointed, he was appointed as prime minister because they didn't trust the indigenous Egyptians. Correct? And therefore, they appointed Yosef who was a foreigner as well. Yosef was appointed by a Hyksos, but ultimately, Middle Chadash HaMasraim was the indigenous population. Uh, Generally king. speaking, uh, the Jews uh, fared well under the Hyksos, right? Absolutely. Well, yeah. Joseph, yes. Enslaved Jewish people is by the indigenous Egyptians. 14th, 13th century, Exodus from Egypt, giving up Surah, 13th before the Common Era, then the book of Joshua and Judges, Yoshua Shoftim, 13th, 12th century, social chaos, Ishashar bin Abi Joshua and the period of the Judges, conquering Israel. We spoke about that, how the first chapter of Joshua and the last chapter of Joshua are very significant in terms of those issues. Book of Samuel is an issue of leadership. 1020 to the year 1000 is King Saul, for the coming era, of course. Right? Then you have 1000 to 960, which is Shibuel Bet, King David. Seven years in Hebron, then 33 years in Yerushalayim. Book of Melachim Aleph, 960 to 920, King Solomon. He builds the first temple in seven years, from 960 to 953. 922, you have division of the twelve tribes into the northern tribes of Israel and southern tribes of Israel. Never was there reconciliation, civil war between these two northern and southern tribes. Early 9th century, you had Eliyahu Elisha, famous of all the pre-literary prophets. We spoke about the classical literary prophets and what made the prophets write down their words. We spoke about that. Now we have Melachim Bet, Yerav Sheni, 785-745. The first literary prophet we spoke about was Amos. You have Hosea, Yishayahu, Yonah. We spoke about what each of these Nevi'im had to offer. Micha, as well. 722. He's still up. He's really great this time. 722, before the common era, is um, the fall of Shomron, exile of the ten tribes. Next page. Now, we're still in the book of Melachim. But remember what we said a few months ago. Yeshua, Shoftim, Shemuel, and Menachim are historical social accounts of what took place. The other books of the prophets, which overlap the book of Menachim Bet, 
are the are all what one might say the rabbinic commentary on what took place in the book of Melachim Bet by and large Melachim Alvin Bet by and large what does that mean? it means if you wanted to know what the Vietnam War was all about look at the New York Times look at Newsweek look at Time Magazine but if you want to know what the rabbinic sermons were about you can't find that in the New York Times you find that in the rabbinic sermon manuals right? that's two different sources to find out so Yeshayahu, Yumiyahu, Hashem, all that, those are the rabbinic response to the social events to place which is recorded mainly in the book of Melachim. Yeshoshafim, Shemuel, and Melachim are historical social works, not really theological, it's an oversimplification, to tell you the truth, but by and large it's true. And therefore, the other books are, the Nidim books are the rabbinic statements about what took place in the book of Melachim. So you'll find, for example, parallel accounts of Sanhiriv coming to Yerushalayim in 701. You have actually three accounts. One in Milachim historical, one in Milachim historical, and in Yeshayahu. Right? So that's we, and one interesting thing that what biblical scholars do is they compare all these events. Right? See how it works out. Seven days of say seven is Cheskiah. Of course, there are different renditions of these dates as well. This is just the most popular of the scholarly dates, but there are other dates as well. No one knows exactly biblical dates. Cheskiah was the king, king of Yerushalayim in 701 by Sanhiriv, and it fails. 687 to 640 was the most evil of kings, Menashe. Paganization of the temple, Yutub Melachim, Beth, chapter 18, should be. I think, just to make sure. Don't go away. <coughs> Who's the most evil of all the kings? Menashe, king. Yeah, I wasn't happy with that. What? 18, I think it is. Uh, and 21. He's 12 years old. He reigned the longest. 55 years on the throne. We know his mother's name, even the eyes of God, as all the pagans did. And what does he do? He paganizes the temple, he brings it into the Baal, into the bed of Mikdash, and he does all astral worship, does all this, and of course he tried to root out God's worship, Hashem's worship, and he killed anybody that did not follow along. Rivers of blood, in the next chapter, we're told, rivers of blood flow throughout. Pasuk 16 in chapter 21 Could you imagine a city which is flowing rivers of blood from end to end is what Menashe did as well as child sacrifice that's Menashe and in Yemiah we're told that's why Harban happened because of what he had actually done then we have religious revolution 640-609 Yoshiah the king discovery of the book of Devarim 622 religious reforms is Yoshiah in 622 612, we have fall of Assyria, rise of Babylonia, the Nevi'im were the Halabukhsifanya. Remember, Sifanya was the Navi who predicted the fall of Assyria, Ashur, because they were so cruel and evil, indicating the biblical idea that if you transgress, you're going to be destroyed. I told you last time we spoke about this, Nazism. If I were preaching during the period of Nazism, what would I preach about? I would say Nazism is going to fall. It's evil, it has to fall. And the same was true of communism which I did in fact say in the 80s after I visited Russia in 76 my answer was Soviet Union is going to be destroyed for 10 years that's true but I said it from 1976 on because it's evil that's what a good book Papa would say what does Nahum do? he describes the fall of Syria he was the on the spot reporter he describes the fall of Assyria in 612 and of course Habakkuk is he who complains about it why is he complaining about it? because the problem of evil I don't get it Hashem we look at that Okay, good. Then you have 609, death of Yoshiyahu, one of the great biblical questions. Why is this righteous king dying in a battle at Megiddo against the Egyptians? Remember the famous map that we drew. What happens over here 
is the King Yoshiao, righteous king, righteous, fantastic revolution. Here's your map of Israel. Jordan River, Mediterranean Sea, the coastline. Egypt is down here, comes up over here. This is called Mehmedidon. Yoshiao comes from Yerushalayim against the advice of Yerushalayim and he meets his death over here. He was trying to help over here. He was trying to help Bavel against Assyria, Ashur. Egypt's coming to help Ashur because he didn't want to see Bavel as a strong power. He did not want to see Bavel as a strong power. It's going to help the weaker Ashur against Bavel. But of course, Yoshiao dies over here, which again changed the history of Israel. Who took over? Yoyakim, 609. Yoyakim takes over. He's pro-Egyptian. Why is he pro-Egyptian against God's word? Because he was just his father was just destroyed by Egypt. His grandfather was destroyed by Egypt. And he was very. That was very upsetting. Then he rebels against Babel in 598. He dies in the rebellion. 598. He dies in the rebellion. And then of course his son Yoyakim takes over. He's exiled to Babylonia. Welcome, Rabbi. Good to see you. Talk about all these evil kings. Look who walks in. <laughs> what a dramatic answer. I'm the true evil. I would <laughs> never say that. The true true king. king. Correct. That's what I would say. Melech Malcheha. Is that who you were saying you are? Yes. We'll get stoned you for that one. Martin Luther. Melech Malcheha. Oh, that's true. Martin Luther. So you have dreams, in other words. Delusions of power. Okay, good. Then we have, in 586, then we have, of course, the Galut. The Horban, which is the second Galut. First, we had Galut Yoyachin in 598 before the Common Era. Remember that? Galut Yoyachin. All of the princely people, Yehezkel Hanavi, are taken to Babylonia, which is, Yehezkel is the only Navi who prophesies outside of the land of Israel, but about Israel. We have the Galut, 586, the Horban, destruction of Nebuchadnezzar. We maintain our identity. One of the great questions of Jewish history is. Whereas, in 722, before the common era, when the ten tribes were exiled, they lost their identity. Those are ten lost tribes, never to be found again. Why did the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, why did, were, did they, were they able to maintain the identity in Babel? Right? Because uh, Nebuchadnezzar allowed them to continue their community life in Babylon, organized... Why did they choose to? Oh. I don't know, but the point is, that's the difference between 722 and 586. Correct. They were completely dispersed, and therefore there was no organized community right. life. Yeah, we can discuss it at length. There's a whole story about this as well. You're right about that. So we'll, another occasion we'll talk about that as well. It's a long discussion. Shom Gedaliah, of course, is a very famous fast. So we fast the third day of Tishrim. We fast 539 Kodesh, the Persian king, new king. Babel is destroyed. New Persian king. What happens to Kodesh? He says Jews go home. They try to go home. 518-515, building of the second temple. 518-515, the Shomerim take the Samaritans. Shomerim still around today. Take an active role in denying the Jews the right to build Bet Hamikdash. Shomerim, Samaritans. Out of the books, Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Samarachi are the post-exilic prophets. Remember that after the Chorban, no longer is the deep speak about Abu Dazra idolatry. Judea is rid of all Abu Dazara after the Horban, but it still maintained its presence in the Western world for the 17th century. Human sacrifice as well. It's astounding. Biblically, Horban means the Jews got the message not to do idolatry. The issue in Haggai Zechariah Malachi is not whatsoever idolatry, but other issues that they had to deal with. Those are all the biblical books. Take note, the right-hand column, the five powers that ruled over Judea during the biblical period, which is Assyria, Bavel, Paras, Yavan, Greece, and Rome, I throw in because it's an extension. So I'd like to have number five. Okay, that's the first 
uh, of the first uh, court. Pharaoh's friend Esther. They come after Koresh, right? Correct, Persian period. Correct. Uh, about, wait, there are some who say that it never is Sarah. Well, correct, but that's yeah. no discussion, but, though. It's, it's a long, long discussion. But, uh, when would you date uh, Hasveros and Esther? Uh, Around when? Uh, what the scholars say. I mean, they, they, it ranges, but nobody knows. From, from, from nine, no, one of the most significant years. events in Jewish history. Nobody, nobody knows. knows uh, when it happens, where. That's correct. That's what makes the job so interesting.